Have you ever been somewhere that you didn't want to be? Maybe you, in a situation that you didn't want to be in? A number of years ago, uh, my family was attending a wedding. It happened to be in Ventura, California, which has pretty moderate weather. And it was in late August and they had this heat wave. It was over 100 degrees and very untypically, it was super humid. And so we pulled up to our hotel late at night and we're like, something's amiss here because there's this long line of people coming out the front door. And we finally get up there and you can hear people muttering and what they're all saying is the air conditioning is broken. We're like, what? So we get up to the front desk and the clerk says, I'm, we have your reservation, but I'm very, very sorry, the air conditioning is broken. And he said, to be perfectly honest, it's probably hotter in the room than it is gonna be out here. So what would you like to do? And so we're like, oh my gosh, that's, that's terrible news because we're exhausted and we just wanna go to bed. We don't wanna have to figure this out. And there's another little family that's talking and they've got little tiny kids. And they were finally just like, look, we just gotta put our kids to bed. So we'll just take our chances with the room. So what do we do? We're like, well, we have a little bit more option than these people do. So we were able to find another hotel room, but it was a pain in the neck. It's not what we wanted to be doing, but it's what we had to do. The situation had changed and we had to figure out how to make the new situation work as best as possible. And that kind of describes where we all are now, doesn't it? We don't really want to be here in these conditions. There's questions about what's next with the pandemic. There's uncertainty about war. The world has changed. Nothing feels familiar. We are not in Kansas anymore. This feels like exile. So how do we make the best of this new situation? How do we make it work as well as we can? So today we're going to look at Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7 because it's going to help us address these questions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we've changed books and we've changed genre. Last week we were in the Psalms, which is kind of Israel's prayer book. And this week we're into the prophets, into the prophet Jeremiah. So we're looking at, it's kind of a cool situation where we've got two different books and two different genre that are telling the same story or parts of the same story. They're both looking at exile. The psalmist is talking about it in one way and the prophet is talking about it another. And I think it's kind of cool to see how two different books are addressing the same situation. This actually happens quite a bit. 
Uh, one year I read the Chronological Bible, which arranges everything in the Old and New Testaments in the order that it actually occurred or was written. And it was really interesting to see how the various texts fit together. Because sometimes, you know, you might have a passage from Kings, and then there would be a Psalm, and then maybe something else. And it was just like, oh, a lot of this stuff fits together. So just uh, this cool moment in the text that we're looking at this morning. So the Psalm pretty much was talking about, here's the exile, how do we feel about this? What, is, what are our emotions and how do we deal with them? When we get to the prophet, he's going to address how should we act. Uh, Jeremiah is going to say, here's the reality of where you are. Here's how you need to respond to that. So let's look at the text and let's make some comments about that. In verse 4, he writes, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Couple points. The first thing that we see here is that God is in control. Even though it was Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who sent the army, who actually carted them back to Babylon, it was really God who was in control of the whole thing. And I think that's important for us to remember, especially in a time where it feels like everything has spun out of control and we are feeling like we're at the mercy of a virus that we don't understand or, at the, or a man who may or may not be mentally coherent anymore. You know, nobody really knows. We feel really out of control. So there's even in exile, even in difficult times, there's this word of hope, this reminder to the people of God that God is still in control, even if, or perhaps this knowledge is most important, even when things are bad. So God's in control. He's the one that brought them into exile. He's in control of all of this. The other thing I think to note in this uh, verse is that God didn't abandon them, even when they kept turning away from, from him, even when they'd been warned over and over again, even when they experience the consequences of their choices, God doesn't abandon them. He never turns their back on them. And I think the lesson for us that we can remember is that God doesn't abandon us either. Even when bad things happen, even when we do stupid things, God doesn't abandon us. God knows where we are and God is present with us. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences and that's important to remember. God doesn't save us most of the time from the consequences of our actions. Sometimes it's a hard lesson to learn. But just because we're experiencing the consequences of sin or stupid things that we have done or said doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. So I think those are important things to note at the beginning. God brought them into exile. God was with them in Babylon as much as he was with them in Jerusalem. It just didn't feel the same. And that's where we have to be reminded that we can't always trust our feelings. Verse 5 build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Max Dupree said that the first task of leadership is to define reality. So the, one of the points from this verse for us is we've got to recognize reality for what it is. We can't live in the past. We can't live in what ifs or we can't 
um, be in denial about the way things are. We can't wish that it was 2019 or 20, you know, 10 or 1950 because it ain't anymore. Those days are gone and we have to deal with the reality of where we are now. So we need to recognize reality so that then we can respond appropriately to that. If we're stuck in the past, if we refuse to recognize what really exists, we'll never move forward. We'll either be stuck in limbo or we will just die. Now this is very applicable to churches because churches don't always do a good job of recognizing reality. We kind of create a reality that we want to live in that might not be reflective of actual reality. What we have to keep doing in this very strange situation is ask, how do we do ministry in the reality now? Uh, how do we do ministry when people have uh, you know, decided not to come to church so much? How do we do ministry when the process of people becoming de-churched has accelerated? How do we do ministry in a very, very different situation where people have different questions and are looking for different answers? So we have to be careful that we are recognizing the reality that we're in. And then that leads to my next point. We have to adapt to change. We can't try to do the same things we used to do in a different situation. And this in the text is a little bit subtle because when Jeremiah tells them, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, one of the things that they are going to hear is, how can we do that? Because when they built new houses, one of the very first things they did after it was built was they dedicated it to God. And first fruits is one of the major offerings in the Jewish sacrificial system. So when they went out for their harvest, the first and the best of the harvest went to God. And so their first question is, can we do that in a foreign land? And Jeremiah seems to imply, yeah, build the house, dedicate it to God in Babylon, even though you're used to doing it in Jerusalem. It's different, but it will accomplish the same thing. Your house will be st still be dedicated to God. Bring your offerings before God, offer them to him. You can do that in Babylon just as much as you could do it in Jerusalem. You see, one of the things that we have to be careful about is that our message should never change. I mean, the gospel is the same, but quite frequently our methods can and should change. Sometimes we just confuse the two. And that would have been their question. How can I build a house? Because they can't dedicate it to God because we're not living in God's land. And what the prophet is reminding them is God is present with you here. And what you need to do is adapt your traditions, adapt the things that God has commanded you to do to the new situation that you find ourself, that you find yourself in. And I think that that's important for us to remember too, because some of the things, whether they're family traditions or church traditions, will probably never be the same again. And you can be stuck in the past and you can just lament the fact that that will never happen again. Or you can ask God, how do I tweak this for now? How do I make this germane for where I am living today? We sometimes have to make changes to adapt to the reality that we're living in. 
Um, I, I mean absolutely no disrespect whatsoever uh, because the, these, are, these are wonderful people. But Megan and I, when we lived in New York, lived very close to Amish country. And in many ways, it was wonderful. I mean, they sold pies, they made quilts, we loved to go out and meet people. But in many ways, they were also stuck in the past. They made a decision that as a religious group, they were going to stay here with that. And so consequently, they were very obviously not changing or adapting to the society. And I don't think that living as Amish people in Gig Harbor or the equivalent is going to help us achieve the goals that we have of making a difference in our community for Jesus. We've got to adapt to the times and change our methodology. Verse 6, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Increase don't decrease. What I hear in that is, don't give up hope. Sometimes when we are faced with insurmountable challenges, uh, whether it's cancer or the failure of a marriage or potential war or viruses or financial difficulties, when things look like they are really hard and we don't know what to do, I think we begin to shrink. We begin to shrink back. But God is telling them in the midst of these uncertain times, in the midst of exile, don't give up hope. Don't decrease. Don't, don't shrink. Go the other direction. Grow. Increase. Keep doing the things that you need to do. Keep moving forward. Don't lose hope. I remember when Megan was pregnant with Rachel, our oldest daughter. I mean, times have always been chaotic, right? And I can remember thinking, what kind of world am I bringing this baby into? Is it even fair to bring a baby into this world? And maybe if you're pregnant now, or if you have a little kid, or you're thinking about being pregnant or adopting or whatever, I mean, maybe you've had some of those thoughts too. The world is crazy. Why would I bring a kid into this? And I remember a person saying to me as I was wrestling with that, she said, well, the reason that you would want to do that is because your kid is going to make the world a better place. And I was like, oh, that's so much better way to look at it. I'm going to raise my kid so that she makes the world a better place, so that she is a blessing to people. And that's really what we prayed for Rachel and then for Allie that our kids would be a blessing, that they would make their communities and the world a better place. And I think that's what Jeremiah is getting at here, when he's like, have sons and, and daughters and give them away so that they have sons and daughters. Be a positive influence. Be, uh, be hope bringers to other people who are living in exile. Now, this idea of increasing and not decreasing, there are echoes of that in other passages of the Bible, like in Genesis 1, 28, in one of the creation accounts, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, increase, do the things that I have for you. Uh, God says it again to Jacob when, uh, when, he is, when he promises Jacob that he will be a great nation. He says the same things, be fruitful and multiply. And then at the end of Genesis, when the people of God go down into Egypt, God says that he is going to multiply them down there. So in times of difficulties or challenges, there is this message to 
not only to be hopeful, but to expand horizons. And the way that I, that I think about that is that God has a plan and a purpose for us. And he wants us to fulfill the purpose that he has for us. In Genesis, go out and populate the world. Be fruitful, multiply, do the things. For Jacob, I'm going to work through you. So multiply. In the Exodus, I'm going to make you a great nation. Grow. The people in exile, don't shrink back. I have a plan and a purpose. To us, don't lose hope. God has a plan and a purpose for us. Which leads us to verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Uh, the point that I want to make here is much like I was just making, and that's be a blessing. You have an opportunity to affect your community positively in so many different ways. Uh, the church isn't called to be kind of a holy huddle, to, to live in a foxhole until Jesus comes and uh, returns and saves us from that. The church is always sent out. And now, we come together. We come together to get built up. We come together to connect with the deeper reality of the kingdom of God. We come together to worship. We come together to grow in discipleship, but always with the purpose of being sent out again to be a blessing to our community. And the church has some very unique opportunities, especially in bad times, especially in challenging times, especially in exile and in many of the ways and times that we find ourselves because we have a story of hope. We, we can rely on something more than who the latest newsmaker or the person who is in power. We have a different story to tell. And we can do that because even in the midst of chaos, even in exile, we're on mission. And, and that was God's point to the people, his people in Babylon. You still have a mission while you're in Babylon. Your mission is to be a blessing to the people in Babylon so that they might come to know me. We're on a mission. God has a plan and a purpose for this time, this crazy time, this chaotic time. God has a plan and purpose for our church but also for you as an individual. I mean, if you think about your spheres of influence, who do you know that needs hope? Who do you know that needs joy? Who do you know that needs peace or encouragement or care or significance because that's your mission field? Those are the people to whom God has called you. Even during this crazy time, we have a unique opportunity to be a blessing. Another point that I think to be made here is that God might have a different perspective from you. I was thinking about where we ended up last week and where we start this week. Um, last week we had an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist is literally saying, I hope they're completely wiped out, down to their children. I wish we could just take the babies and dash their heads against the rock. And we unpacked that last week. Go back and listen to the sermon if, if, if you didn't hear it. This week, where you would think Jeremiah would be saying, hey, here you are, you're in this foreign land and you're making the best of it, but man, just pray for an overthrow of the government. Pray for something bad to happen. But that's not what Jeremiah tells them to pray for. Jeremiah says, seek their good. Don't sabotage them. Seek their good. Pray for them. D does that mean that, that God's people are called to not be discerning? 
this, does that mean that God's people are called to uh, get into bed with evil and try and, you know, let, let the government uh, succeed even when it's wrong? Not at all. The, the clue in seeking their good and in praying for them is to pray a certain thing for them. It's not that all of their enterprises would succeed. Ultimately, what we're praying for is their peace and the prosperity that comes with peace. Now, before I get into what peace looks like, I, I want to spend just another moment with the idea of praying for people, particularly of praying for um, people who are oppressing us or people who are doing bad things. Um, first of all, it says, pray to the Lord for those things, for their peace and for their prosperity. Well, when it comes to prayer, doesn't God already know? I mean, doesn't God already know that we need peace? Doesn't God already know that there are people who are in need who could stand some prosperity? Doesn't God already know that? And my answer is, yeah, God knows everything. So then why is he asking them, why is he asking us to pray for these things so that God will bring it about? Here's my best stab. I've prayed for a long time, and I'm pretty much a student of prayer. I've prayed in a hundred different ways, all of them valuable. And I can tell you conclusively, I don't always understand prayer, but one of the things that I know about, or how it works, but one of the things that I know about it is, when I pray, I change. And I think this is part of God asking us to continually change by being exposed to him and his plan and his purpose because our first reaction when we are in difficult times is to pray imprecatory prayers. God, hurt the people that have hurt me. God, take care of them. And yet God is still asking, he's taking care of his people, but he's asking us to pray for the peace and the prosperity of some of the people who have done bad things. Why? Because you have to understand what peace really is. For us, peace is the absence of hostility. It might be having a sense of calm. I feel really at peace with that. That's, that's kind of it. But, but even that sense just means that nothing is disturbing me. I'm okay with this. What is biblical peace? Because it really is quite a big different. Biblical peace, shalom in the Old Testament, irene in the New Testament, means something a whole lot different. It can be translated as wholeness. Like for instance, if you've got a brick wall and there is a part of it has fallen down, if you go back out and you put the bricks back up and put new mortar in it and throw some paint over the top of that, you can say that you have shalomed the wall. You've brought wholeness back to the wall. So it's wholeness in the sense of something has been put back together again. So our hearts can be shalomed. Our pain can be shalomed. That's this deeper sense of peace where something that has been broken has been made whole against. That's shalom. Shalom also means that, that there is something better. Shalom talks about the situation that you're in but a better thing that can come into that situation. Shalom in relationships 
is not only the healing of relationships, it's not just the absence of hostility, shalom and relationship between people or between nations, is when people start working together for each other's benefits. To have shalom in a relationship doesn't just mean that I don't actively hate you or that we are not actively at war anymore. It means I'm actively working for your good. It means we are working together to create something better. And I think that that's super insightful, that God is calling us to shalom, to wholeness, to something better, to putting things back together, to healing people, to healing relationships, to healing um, nations. So those are the prayers that God wants us praying during these times, that God wants us praying during exile for people who are at war, to have more than just the cessation of hostility, but to come together and be able to create something for each other's benefits, for the wholeness of people and for the world. And we get this picture of ultimate shalom, of relationship between people, relationship between nations. We get this picture when we see the picture of what the return from exile will look like. And that's in Revelation 21, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea is always chaos. The sea is always evil. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling, God's dwelling place is now among the people. No more exile, God among us, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. All the unshalom will be gone. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The reason that we're doing this series is because exile is real. Being separated from God is real. Living in chaotic times, living in uncertain times, living in places that we don't want to be, in situations that we didn't want to be in, is real. And we want to be reminded that God is at work, that he has a plan and he has a purpose, even for these times, and that the future holds a return from exile when we're all brought home. So let me ask you three questions. What realities have changed in your life over the past two years? Number two, where can you see God at work even in the difficult areas of your life? And number three, in our new reality, what does being on mission look like for you?